the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. Thanks for tuning in. I can't believe we've made it to the end of another week. I don't know if it's the same for you, but it just seems like time is flying by. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering questions, Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, whatever's on your heart, you need only to provide the phone call, 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email your questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And as always, if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Well, I don't know about you. We got a lot going on this weekend. I know you're going to be going to church on Sunday. May the Lord bless it. Here at Calvary Chapel, we're going to be teaching tonight at 7 o'clock. I'm going to be in Philippians chapter 3, the first 11 verses. Um, again, I say to you, rejoice, the Apostle Paul says. So, uh, considering he wrote it from prison, that's a pretty high standard to keep. But that's tonight at 7 o'clock here at Calvary Chapel San Antonio. Tomorrow morning, of course, we have corporate prayer here and then uh, also our pastor's discipleship class uh, tomorrow at 1030 for those of you who are uh, involved or who are interested in seeing what it's all about. So that is tomorrow. Uh, one programming note, and I'll try my best to remember at the end of the program, but I'm getting old, so I don't always remember. Uh, Monday is a holiday, so we will be having a rebroadcast on Monday and then back with you live on Tuesday uh, and uh, have our regular scheduled programming. Okay, let's get to some questions. We'd love your phone calls uh, and questions. The first one is Glenn. And he says, what should the Christian view of drinking alcohol be? Glenn, you're going to get a lot of varied answers on this, so I'm just going to be true to, to what I believe. Um, I've never seen anything of value uh, for personally, um, personally for people. Uh, I've never seen anything of value personally for the kingdom of God. Uh, I've never seen anything that enhances or or benefits the gifts that God has given us or the ministry opportunities. I've never seen anything like that come from drinking alcohol. I am opposed, of course, as a pastor. I do a lot of counseling. I see the devastation that alcohol causes. I see the pain uh, that that truly passes from one generation to the next. Um, I still am counseling uh, people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and sometimes even 60s who grew up in alcoholic homes and have never felt loved or secure. So, Glenn, I'm just going to tell you the Christian view of alcohol, uh, drinking alcohol for me ought to be we shouldn't do it. Abstinence is what we ought to do. Now, having said that, drinking moderately 
is not a sin. Getting drunk, getting high at all is, but drinking moderately is not. And I'm not trying to be a legalist or impose my views on anyone else. But I think the best thing that we can do, Glenn, in a, in a, with a question like this, is uh, take our cue from the Apostle Paul. He said, I'm free to do all things, or all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. So that would be, I think, what a biblical perspective on drinking alcohol ought to be. And I know that uh, there are people who, well, I just have wine or I just have a drink at night to calm down. If you have to drink to sleep or if you have to drink to, 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 to rest or calm down at home, then alcohol is a problem for you. So I just don't think anybody ought to drink ever. Uh, and yet I realize I'm not going to change the world. I'm not going to convince people. And the Bible only says that drinking to the point of being drunk and high is being drunk. Um, that's the only sin. So uh, this is a matter of conscience. Romans 14.23 says that anything not of faith is sin. And, Glenn, I think uh, that's what we ought to do. If the Holy Spirit's knocking on the door of your heart, then you ought not to do it. Let me also say this. You know, I always say I'm a, I'm a typical pastor. You can tell that. Say, my last thought is, and then I've got two more. Um, those of us who are adults, and we go home and drink every day, whether it's a little or a lot, what kind of example are we setting for our children? I can promise you if you drink at home, your kids are going to drink when they are in high school and they're out doing things with kids that uh, are, are out drinking and partying. You know that's going to be true. Uh, if if uh, people come to them and offer them drugs and they see that that you're dependent on alcohol at home, then they're they're way more likely to get involved in drug use and experimentation simply because of the example that was set at home. And we are stewards over our families, and we need to be very very careful about what kind of an example that we set. So, Glenn, as you can see, because of the pain that I've experienced with people, um, I have very strong views on this issue. Uh, but, but uh, honestly, the really the real struggle that you have to deal with is uh, is with the Holy Spirit, who's knocking at the door of your heart. Here's a question from Chip. He says, "Sex before marriage?" With a question mark. Why do some pastors treat it like it's such a big deal? Chip, I'm telling you, the reason we treat it like it's such a big deal is because it is. God makes it a very big deal. I, for for somebody who, who, who professes to be a Christian, I can never understand this question. We open the book, our Bible, and the Bible tells us to do this or don't do this. I mean, we can break down most of the practical instructions that way. Do this and be blessed. Do this and be cursed. And sex outside of marriage, all sex, not some, all sex outside of marriage is sin. I do an awful lot of pre-marriage counseling, Chip. And when people come to me and say, uh, God brought this woman into my life or God brought this man into my life, and then they're having sex, is that the way they thank God? Oh, Lord, thank you so much for bringing this person. I've been waiting. You've been so good to me, Lord. And then here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to defile her. I'm going to defile him. Because satisfying my own lust is more important to me than honoring you. Chip, it's a very big deal. The Apostle Paul says, All other sins a man commits are sins committed outside his own body. But when we're, we sin sexually... We're sinning against our own body, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the, the, the inference is very clear that we're giving the enemy a foothold to destroy us. So, Chip, sex before marriage is wrong. You know it's wrong. You knew it was wrong when you wrote the question. And we treat it like a big deal. Unfortunately, some pastors don't. But we treat it like a big deal because we're going to stand before God and give account of our ministry. And if he says it's important, if he says it's harmful, then I've got to communicate that to the people that God loves, the people that I love. And so it is a very, very, very big deal. Now, having said that, let me also say 
that we live in a world that is so overrun by sex that most even professing Christians, let me rephrase that, many, not most, many professing Christians completely disregard it. Obviously, we've got professing Christian churches. They're not really, but they profess to be that uh, encourage and affirm a homosexual behavior. Uh, we've got other pastors whose uh, auditoriums are filled every week with young people uh, who are sexually active with one another. The pastor doesn't say anything about it. So, Chip, those pastors are going to have to stand before God and explain why they were ashamed of enforcing God's standard. God makes the rules. He made us. He's the one that gave us the ability, the capacity for sex. He's the one, the only one, that gets to determine the rules for the gift that he's given us. And whenever we decide that his rules are antiquated or old-fashioned, the reality is what we're saying is we just don't care what you say, Lord. And I try to get people to the point where they'll be that honest with the Lord. Lord, I know this is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. At least, at least then God can deal with an honest heart. We pretend everything is okay. Uh, Chip, never forget, it is a very, very big deal to God, and he's the one that counts. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. I often wonder, Chip, how we would explain to the Lord that we didn't agree with him on an issue of sex. So I hope that gives you some clarity, Chip. Here's a question from Kevin. Is there more than one will of God, his perfect will, or is there also an acceptable will? Um, Kevin, there's only one will of God. God is perfect. He has a plan for each of our lives. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are his workmanship, his poem, his expression of, of creativity. Um, and we are being prepared for the works that he has prepared in advance for us to do. So there's only one perfect will of God. Only one. Now, the confusion comes in. In the book of Romans, Paul says that we would be able to test and approve what God's perfect, pleasing, and acceptable will is, depending on the translation that you're, you're reading. But that's not three wills, it's just one. His will is perfect, his will is pleasing, and his will is acceptable. But, you know, we have a tendency to think, well, well, this is God's permissive will. No, uh, we sin, we fall short, uh, we refuse to obey. Uh, we're the only ones who are permitting it. And there will be consequences for the choices that we make. So there's this one will of God, Kevin. It is a will that we all need to pursue, and we find ourselves in that perfect will of God, and it's it's perfect. You know, the last, oh, week and a half, I'm an uh, old surfer from Southern California, and people have been sending me these surf videos because there's these huge, huge sets of waves that are hitting uh, the entire California coast, most notably the Southern California coast, and even more notably, real south, the San Diego area. And they've had 18 to 20 foot swells in some places, and it's huge. And and people are out there, and they're, they're so exhilarating. Now, I was never that good of a surfer. I was never that kind of a, uh, of a big wave hunter or anything like that, so I don't want to mislead anybody. But... But you can see the exhilaration and crowds are all over and the waves are packed with people and they just want to get on that wave. Well, when you're in the will of God, the perfect will of God, it's like being at the top of one of those waves and dropping into the wave. And it's just, there's nothing like it. And the the, the difference obviously is this swell is going to end. I heard a report today they could continue for another 10 to, 10 to 14 days. Um, but they end. But the beautiful thing for us as believers, Kevin, is that God's wave, his perfect will, never ends. It just never ends. And what we've got to do is just get on top of that wave and ride it for as long as we possibly can. That's the work that God has created us to do. And we are being prepared for that work. There's going to be a lot of times when being in the will of God's a little routine or monotonous. Maybe it isn't what we expected it would be. But all of those times, tests and trials 
are times of preparation, waiting for that big metaphorical set of waves to come in so we can get on there and God can say, now go ride this one. That's what his being in his perfect will. Kevin, my final thought on your question is this. Uh, I have been um, in the middle of God's perfect will for almost now 32 years. Um, 27 and a half of those years right here in San Antonio, Texas. Um, Texas was a place I never had been, never wanted to go. And yet when I got here, even the really hard times, especially at the beginning, the presence of the Lord was so close that even those times were perfect. Doesn't mean there weren't hard times. Doesn't mean there weren't really, really painful trials. But what it means is that it's like being on that figurative surfboard and just screaming, Lord, this is the best place in the world to be. And that's one of the reasons uh, when I tell people, just be with Jesus, that's what I want for everybody. I want them to be able to ride that spiritual wave. Good question. Thanks very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Joseph. He says, how do I balance being proud of what God is doing in my life and not touching God's glory? Um, Joseph, that's a really important question. One of the things that I do every day, every morning, and I've shared this many times, but but the, the last thing I say is, Lord, um, uh, for Paula and, and, and I, we, we want to be um, always and only bringing you honor and glory in our lives. Now, obviously, there's times when people notice what you're doing. God, God uses us. You know, Jesus said nobody lights a lamp and puts it under a bushel, but we set it up on a high place to give light to the whole room. Well, that's what we as Christians are doing. And I'm really proud of the work that God is doing here at Calvary Chapel. I'm really proud of, of the, the fact that I get to pastor the greatest group of people in the whole world um, to, to see what God is doing in their lives. And I get to do that because he put me in this position. So while I'm proud of it and I'm delighted to be it where he wants me to be, I know I have nothing to do with it. And I view my life as God putting me um, in the middle of this really, really good movie. And I have the best seat in the house to watch it unfold. Now, I'm in the movie, but I'm in the best seat in the house to watch that movie unfold. And that's what it's like doing what I do. Well, Joseph, the same thing is true for you. Be delighted, not in what you can do. This isn't about you. This isn't about uh, how gifted you are. It's not about what other people say to you. Your response should be sheer delight simply because God lets you play in his game. Think about that. It has nothing to do with what I do. It's just that God has entrusted me to be here doing what I'm doing. And God alone gets the glory. The minute you start touching God's glory, the minute you think that that you're a, a, a necessary part of the equation, the minute that you start listening to people compliment you and start to think, well, you know, you're right, that's when you're in real danger and that's when everything is going to fall. God simply won't share his glory. And so we give him glory. Even Jesus. Father, I have completed the work that you've called me to do. He talked about protecting his disciples. I've kept them all safe. But now, Lord, they're yours, he would say. And what was the father's response? This is my son in whom I'm pleased. Listen to him. And Joseph, that's what we really need to understand. The minute we think we have anything at all to do with what God is doing through us, other than our obedience, that's all. 
would Paul say? How can I boast except in that what God is doing? The minute we think that we're necessary, the minute we think that everything's going to fall apart without us, well, that's when we're in real, real danger. And unfortunately, Joseph, that's what we get. You know, Joseph, I get a lot of people who will say things to me at the end, especially visitors. Uh, I, I try to meet people. I, I, after church, our, our building is small and a little hard to traverse from back to front. Uh, so I just stay where I am at the front of the church so people can come up and talk to me. And and people will often say things like, oh, Pastor Ellen, it's the first time I've been here. That was the great message or the best message, or that kind of stuff. That means nothing to me. And I always tell people, look, that says a whole lot more about your heart than it does about my preaching. So uh, God bless you. Thank you. Hope to see you again. But I know that nothing that happens here has anything at all to do with me. I just get to be a part of it. And as long as I don't disqualify myself, I get to continue being a part of it. It's a wonderful, wonderful place to know. Good question, Joseph. Be careful. Um, be grateful. But remember, don't touch his glory. It doesn't depend on you. Here's an anonymous question. Um Pastor, you said you can't lose your salvation, but Revelation says our names can be blotted out of the book of life. Anonymous, nowhere, 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 nowhere in Revelation, in fact, nowhere in the Bible does it say our names can be blotted out of the book of life. What it says is, I will not, and this is Jesus speaking, I will not blot your names out of the book of life. That's about as uh, a certain uh, promise, a guarantee of our security as you can possibly get. Our names are written in the book of life. Jesus knows who's going to be his. Our names are written from the foundations of the world in the book of life. And he says, if you're really mine, I'll never blot them out. It's as strong a phrase as the Greek language has. And yet people read that and say, well, he says he won't blot their names out, which means he must blot out some names. It doesn't say that at all. And we have to be very careful about how we read uh, those passages of Scripture. We can't make a conclusion. You know, Calvinists will say, well, God chooses those who are going to go to heaven, so he must choose those who are going to go to hell. It never says that. That's sort of linear thinking, earth thinking, and it's simply not true. So, uh, Anonymous, read the passage again, because what Jesus promises is that our names will never, can never be blotted out of the book of life. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. I think we've got about four minutes left in this half of the program. Sometimes on Fridays the phones are quiet. Remember, you're always more interesting than I am. Roy asks me just to comment on woke churches, please. Um, Roy, they are a disgrace to the name of Christ, to the work of Christ, to the commission that we've been given. Um, they're certainly not churches where Jesus is in the center, walking around as he is in Revelation chapter 1. Uh, it's a church where Jesus isn't invited. Uh, it's a church that is misleading people. Now, clearly, there are going to be some genuine Christians in those churches and that's sad because they're not going to end up being fruitful or productive for the kingdom of God. Um, but the reality is they're just churches that are being transformed by the world that we live in instead of being transformed by the Spirit of God. So there isn't a lot to say um, about woke churches uh, or, or liberal churches. You know, that was the term when I got saved. Uh, except that they're not doing the work of God, that the enemy is the one in control in those churches, period. And the fact that a lot of people show up in those churches and call themselves Christians and sing worship songs uh, to the Lord, uh, none of that is pleasing to him, and it breaks his heart. It absolutely breaks his heart. I think about some of the seven letters that Jesus wrote. Um, and in some of those churches, and in, in, in a couple of those letters in particular, he had absolutely nothing but condemnation for those churches. And so I don't have to guess what Jesus would think about woke churches. All I have to do is read what he's already said. 
So, Roy, I, again, I, I can't go into detail other than to say uh, generally they're displeasing to the Lord, and I think uh, all of us as believers know. Nancy, last question, this half of the program says, Romans 12 talks about our reasonable service. What does that mean? Well, you're reading a King James Version, Nancy, and I love that passage. Uh, Paul says, brothers, in view of God's mercy, I beseech you to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to the Lord. And then the King James says, this is your reasonable service. The, the NIV translate that, translate this is your spiritual act of worship, or we might better understand it as our, our genuine or sincere act of worship. So what Romans 12 is talking about is the only reasonable thing. If you consider all that God has done for you, if you consider all of the wonderful promises he's made, if you consider his faithfulness, Nancy, the only reasonable thing that we can do is surrender to God completely. Now, that ought to convict a whole lot of people because we can't hold anything back. We can't say, well, I'm going to give most of my life, but I want this part of my life to be to mine for a while. It's not, that's unreasonable. It's also nice to know, Nancy, that our faith is reasonable. So I hope that helps. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the week. We would love your calls and questions. 340-9585. This is the word to stand up for life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. I'll be back in two minutes. To the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our show. Thank you for tuning in. We've got 30 minutes left in our week. Here is a question from our email inbox from Scott. He says, Pastor Ron, overall, I understand the meaning of what Paul is telling Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 11 through 16. What I can't wrap my head around is the specific mention of keep this command. In verse 13, he says, in the sight of God who gives life to everything, um, he, he, he miss, miss, this is not, he, I'm sorry, Scott, you don't, you didn't read it right. So let me read it from the, from the passage. It said, um, in the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Jesus Christ, who will test, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time, God the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And then Scott's question ends with this. Um, The way this passage is written, I really don't understand exactly what the specific command is. Is it the command to fight the good fight? Is it the command to take hold of eternal life? Or is it the earlier command in verse 11 to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness? Or is it all of the above? Scott, I think you figured it out for yourself because it's all of the above. Now, we need to remember, and we have a tendency at times to um, look at things um, from verse to verse to verse. But in the context, this passage of Scripture is just sort of Paul's charge to Timothy. Uh, This is what you're accountable to God. This is what I've trained you to do. And of course, we know that Timothy was Paul's son in the faith. So this wasn't Paul worried about Timothy. He's simply giving him a charge. This is an exhortation. And I've said often uh, on this program that I think exhortation is really um, the thing that is missing the most from most sermons, most preaching. Um, you know, we can shout and we can yell and we can tell cute stories and we can tie it all together. But but we, there's got to be a call to action. And this is simply Paul calling Timothy to action. And the context is this. You, man of God, don't be like other people. Flee from all of this. That's the sexual immorality that is all around, the love of money. Um, um, from the verses before, again, the context sort of rules 
the the uh, definition of the of the passage, the meaning of the passage. So flee all of those bad things, and then he says this, and here's the charge: pursue righteousness. We all of us we need to pursue righteousness. It needs to be walking in the holiness of God. Um, walking with Jesus every day. That's how we pursue righteousness. There's no righteousness we have of our own. So it's it's the righteousness that's been given to us. It means that we've got to walk like Jesus. Uh, to pursue godliness, the same thing. To pursue faith and love, endurance and gentleness, all of those things. If we're not pursuing those things, then our walk, Scott, is not complete. So here's what he's saying. Here's your charge. Pursue righteousness. Pursue godliness. Pursue faith. We've got to trust God and walk, and we've got to do it to the end. We've got to, got to finish the course, finish the race. In Second Timothy, of course, Paul will say to Timothy, um, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness. And then he, I love that he adds gentleness. I, I've been talking a lot at our church about the the fruit of the spirit and gentleness is one of those fruits of the spirit and and uh, the two kind of go together kindness and gentleness they're very attractive the people see that and 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 they want to be like that and so he's saying Timothy pursue gentleness and then in verse 12 he says fight the good fight of faith you know too many of us we we really kind of would rather stay out of the fight I'll do all the other stuff but I don't want to fight lord and the, the reality is there's going to be a fight on our hands. This is a spiritual war that we're in, and we've got to fight the good fight of faith. It is worth fighting for. And here's another command. Take hold of the eternal life. Too many of us, we have questions about our eternal security. No, take hold. Take hold of it. Believe it. And then what he's saying is that's the command. Pursue this command. Keep this command why? Because Jesus is coming back, and we're going to see him, and we're going to see him in the near future. So, Scott, all of that is um, the answer to your question, not just one or part of it. Sneeze break, sorry. <laughs> Mountain Cedar. Uh, but it's the whole thing, Scott, and that's the context of the passage as he signs off in that letter. I love uh, Paul's letters to Timothy. And in particular, his second letter, because it's the most personal letter that he has. Here's a question from Sandy from our email inbox. She says, Pastor Ron, a friend wants to give my husband a good news Bible. Is that a good translation? Because my friend says it's written in plain English. My husband has trouble understanding conversation and written word because of something called aphasia. And my friend thinks this might help. I wanted to get your opinion. Thank you so much, Sandy from Seguin. Sandy, thank you for asking. Uh, I'm not a big fan of the Good News Bible, but but if it helps, if if he would read it, then it's certainly better than nothing. I don't think it will harm him at all. Um, having said that, let me give you another alternative, and and I'm, I'm speaking right from my own living room uh, here, Sandy. Read to your husband. Get a 1984 NIV or find a New King James. Um, we can all understand that. It's, it's, it's not difficult. It's, the, 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 the New King James, the NIV, is written at about the 6th or 7th grade level. Um, and sometimes people with these kind of conditions and learning disabilities, um, um, they, they do much better with somebody reading to them. So try that. And what will happen is uh, the Holy Spirit will sort of uh, whet his spiritual appetite. And then when you're not reading to him, um, he'll be moved to pick up a Bible and start reading it. He needs to kind of fight through it. Uh, this is a sacrifice of worship. It's a sacrifice of praise. And we do that because these are the words of life. I also would say this, Sandy, that that the Holy Spirit is far more powerful than um, your husband's condition. Uh, I think so often, and I don't know your husband, I don't know you, so uh, it's not one of those things where I can speak specifically, but generally. Um, we often, we have a condition and we rationalize, well, since I can't do it, um, I won't do it. 
Uh, it's just hard for me. And so we, we don't give up. But this is why fighting, fight the good fight, we just had from our last question, fighting the good fight is important, Sandy. And, um, and, and sometimes we just have to discipline ourselves to do it. Let me also say this, Sandy, a wonderful benefit of you reading to your husband will be the way God knits yours and his hearts together in your service. The Bible is supernatural. It's living and active. The Holy Spirit lives in both of you. And reading the word together and the conversations that will result from being in the word together. Now, I'm not talking about just opening the Bible and reading it where the Bible opens, but reading systematically and reading for understanding and, and carefully considering what it's saying and what the Lord is speaking to us to do, those are very, very important things to do. But you've got to fight for it. And, uh, boy, the, the, the blessing that will be in your marriage, and when I said I'm speaking from my own uh, living room, Sandy, Paula has now been reading to me for years. Uh, I'm visually impaired, um, um, we had to learn this. I, I'm, I'm not a super patient guy. And uh, I, I used to be a very fast reader. And this always seemed too slow to me. But over the years, as she's read to me, I can't tell you what a blessing it has been for me personally. I can't tell you what a blessing it's been to our marriage. And I hope it's been a blessing to Paula. Of course, she's been obedient uh, to the Lord. And so she's being blessed. But it, it, it's just richer than than I can communicate to you. Um, we we do it even if we're in a hurry. There and times we have to hurry. Uh, we have schedules and things that happen and counseling sessions and things like that. Um, but we always try to make time um, so she can read it to me, and she does that. And um, the benefits that you guys will will reap as a result is really important. So the Good News Bible, not my favorite, um, but it's okay. Um, I much prefer the New King James and, and even more than that, the 1984 version of the NIV. Let's go to Ruben on line one from Seguin. Ruben, thanks for calling. You're on the air. God bless you, Pastor Ron. Always a pleasure to talk to you, and um hope, hope you're having a great day today. Thank you, Ruben. I am. Um, I have a question out of Second Kings 8 and 16, and I'm going to read it really quick. They throw a whole bunch of names out, and I wish I could ask you who this person is, who that person is, and you know, uh, I, I don't. My my Bible doesn't have a place to look them up, like who they are. But anyway, start quick. <clears throat> Eight sixteen in the fifth year of Joram, son of Ahab, king of Israel, when Jehoshaphat was king of Judah, uh, Jehoram, son of Jehoshaphat began his reign as king of Judah. He was 32 years old when he became king and reigned in Jerusalem eight years. Okay, th- these two next ones are the, the ones that I'm I'm going to focus on. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel as the house of Ahab had done, for he married a daughter of Ahab. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Nevertheless, for the sake of his servant David, the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah. He had promised to maintain a lamp for David and his descendants forever. Okay, two questions here. Okay, 18, he says, he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel as the house of Ahab had done, and then he married his daughter. Okay, the first thing. Um, At this point in time... uh, the king. I thought pretty much the kings of Israel were doing what God wanted to do. Okay, that's what I thought. Now, now the second part on eight and eighteen. Nevertheless, for the sake of his servant David, and I'm assuming he's talking about King David. Yes. The Lord. Okay, the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah. He had promised. Now, what does this mean? He had promised to ma- to maintain a lamp for David and his descendants forever. What does that phrase mean? Lamp yeah. for David and his descendants forever. Thank you, Ruben. Uh, th- this is important. I, I just, uh, not too long ago, we, we I'm, I'm still in Second Kings on our Wednesday night study. And uh, Ruben, if you're reading it, it might be helpful to either have my commentary, which is online at our website, or listen to the Bible studies. Uh, there's an emphasis on practical application. Now, when it says that he was... 
unwilling to destroy Judah. Uh, remember, this, this bad king, um, uh, Jehoram, um, um, walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. Now, at this particular place, prophet after prophet is going to both the northern tribes, that's Israel, and the southern tribes, the two tribes, that's Judah. And they were they were telling him, if you don't repent, judgment is going to come. And and uh, I just finished the part, uh, not this Wednesday, but the Wednesday before, where uh, the, the 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 northern tribes were completely destroyed, overrun by Assyria. So here's what he's saying: there is now a new king in Judah, but he was evil. And he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel as the house of Ahab had done. Ahab, of course, married Jezebel. Um, she was the most wicked woman ever. She's the one that controlled Ahab. And Ahab was a horrible, horrible king. And he paid the price. So even though this king of Judah, now they're going back and forth throughout the kings. They're going Israel, uh, all the kings were bad. Uh, to Judah, most of the kings were bad. Um, but he's saying, look, uh, well, well, Israel, the northern tribes are going to be wiped out. I can't wipe out the southern tribes because I promised David in an unconditional covenant that he would have a descendant on the throne of Israel forever and ever. And, of course, that is a prophecy, a promise that will be fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Good question, Reuben. Keep reading. Those names are confusing but they're really interesting studies. Let's go to Caesar from San Antonio Online 2. Caesar, thank you for holding. You're on the air. Yes, Pastor Ron. Thank you for uh, taking my phone call. I just mm-hmm. wanted to let you know that I am super pumped this week because, God willing, this Sunday, my wife and I are going to make your 830 service. So we've been looking forward to that. So we're just pretty ecstatic that that's finally going to manifest itself. Oh, bless your heart, Caesar. No, let me let me say this. I wasn't going to say anything, but let me say this. Uh, I'm actually going to be speaking at another church uh, in my capacity as a Calvary Chapel Regional Director. Um, so Pastor Ken, who you will love, is going to be here, and you will meet the nicest people in the whole world. So you come to the first service. I promise you when you meet the people, you'll come back. And when you come and visit us, I'd love to be able to hug you, and, and thank you for being a listener on the radio program. But but I don't leave very often, and uh-huh. um, uh, but but I do want to make myself available to some of the other churches in the region that I oversee. And uh, every once in a while, there's something going on, or they'll call me and ask if I can be there. So this Sunday, uh, I'm going to be out. But Pastor Ken will be here, and you will be blessed. So you come anyway. Ah, uh, uh, shucks. Well, that, you know what? It is what it is. I'll, I'll take Pastor Ken. I'm sure that he'll bless us. <laughs> but um, I, I do have a question for you. Okay. Um, I, there's a, uh, a anti-Christian missionary rabbi. His name is Tobia Singer. And uh, I was watching one of his debates, and he said a joke, and I just wanted to say the joke to you and get your thoughts on it. So uh, the, the, the rabbi says, I quote, why did God invent Mormons so Christians would know what Jews feel like? That was his joke. Uh, can I just get your thoughts on that joke? And uh, again, I highly appreciate you for everything you do, and thank you for your answer in advance. Thank you, Caesar. I'd, I'd, I'd need a little bit more of the context of the joke, but I, I, I frankly, what, whatever he would have to say to me or to say would really have no value at all. Um, he's coming from a perspective. I know there are a lot of, of people that really detest the fact that we Christians are, um, are, are, are evan- evangelists when it comes to people of other religions, you know, live and let live, and we're, we're God's people. But the reality is, and all you have to do is follow the life of the Apostle Paul, um, all you, we need to understand that, that Jews and everybody else need to be evangelized. And that's our responsibility. Caesar, I look forward to meeting you. I hope you can come back another time. God bless you for coming and, and uh, introduce yourself to Pastor Ken. I'm sure he will be blessed as a result. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. You know, one of the things that's hard, and and I'm a reasonably public person, so we get asked to speak um, um, in, in other churches, uh, and I've got to be really, really careful about that because, um, you know, this is the this is my job, and these are the people that I love, and uh, and yet there are just some times when the Lord is leading, and I especially. 
I especially like going to small churches. Uh, pastors are tired. They're, it's it's hard. And um, and I, I want to be a source of encouragement. And I really believe at this particular time that the Lord was calling me to do it. Right, and at the end of February, I'm going to uh, to San Francisco. And I'll be speaking at a pastor's conference there. Um, uh, for for other Calvary Chapel pastors for the whole Northern California area, but I tr- I really try not to do that very often simply because on Sunday I need to be home with my family. So we don't miss very often. I miss one Sunday a year for my vacation, and then maybe three or four Sundays a year uh, in other churches. But this is my home. Here's a question from a worried parent from our email inbox. Uh, Pastor Ron, I'm worried for my kids and their future in school. They're constantly surrounded by sin and being told that abortion, being gay, and other gross sin is okay. How can I protect them? My kids are ages 12 and 16, and I want to protect their hearts. How do I do that? My kids go to youth group at our church, but I feel as though they are being pandered to instead of taught. How do I deal with the world? How can I fix this? Worried parent, God bless you for this heart. And it's time for you to take some action. Now, none of the things that I'm going to suggest are going to be pleasing to you. If your kids aren't being taught at their youth group, and when I say being taught, I mean taught the word. Not playing games, not telling cool stories, not sitting around in circles. But but if they're not being taught, you need to find a church where they're going to be taught. Period. You need to find a church where they're being taught. It's probably, if they're not being taught, an indication of what you as the adults are not being taught. It, it just demonstrates the, the lack of seriousness that churches have these days. And, uh, you know, to go to a youth group where everybody's cool and the guy up there doing the teaching is really a hip young guy. i, I got to tell you, I've got two uh, youth pastors. And when I brought them on, now, let me say, I didn't, I, I almost say when I hired them, uh, th- these are kids I've known from literally almost birth. And uh, they were raised up in this church. And so uh, I didn't have to worry about what they know or their, their, their view on the Bible. Um, I, I never gave them the freedom. Just do whatever you want. No, they know they're going to teach the Bible. They're going to teach it verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And they're going to be very direct with the kids. And I made the point with both of them. I said, I, I want you to be the least cool youth pastors in the whole world. Because I want you to stand for Jesus Christ. And boy, has the Lord ever answered my prayers. Uh, junior high school uh, and high school, and your kids are in both of those groups. Um, uh, the, the teaching is, is really, really good. And it is also relevant. So it's time to find a church. Your kids are going through things that we never dreamed we would go through when we were growing up, and they seriously need to be equipped. So it's just no longer okay to be passive about it. Now, the same thing is true in school, and I know how inconvenient this is going to be, but uh, I've only changed my tune in the last few years. Uh, I was never against kids going to public school. Now you've got to get these kids out of public school, period. I don't know anything about your uh, financial situation, what you can afford uh, in terms of private school. I don't know about your availability for homeschool. I don't understand. I don't even know if you're gifted to teach, but you've got to get them out of public school. Because this is what's going on. These kids are being brainwashed. And without a solid foundation in the word, then they're going to be overwhelmed by the brainwashing of this world around them. So you've got to get them out of public schools. Abortion, being gay, transgender, uh, all of that is not just okay. It's affirmed and accredited in the sense that if you do this, you're brave, and boy, uh, uh, the world is going to be proud of you. Um, They're trying to destroy your children, and it's time for us as parents to be militant about this. And your kids don't get a vote in in the matter, by the way. You do what's best for them. You be their parent and not their friend. You protect their hearts, regardless of, well, I don't want to leave my friends, or I don't want to change churches. It's time to realize that we're in a war. Let me also say, 
um, the other thing that you need to do for your kids is make sure that they are not exposed to social media. Watch what they're doing online, on the computer. Uh, if your kids have telephones, uh, you've given them the, the, the tools to destroy themselves. Uh, and these kids are smarter with electronics than we are, with technology than we are. They can, they've got apps that I promise you, you can't find what they're doing. And social media is being used to brainwash these kids. And what I pray for these kids is that they'll come to their own mind rather than the brainwashed mind that the world has created. And, um, and, and then they'll look up instead of looking out. And as a parent, it's your responsibility to take this seriously. That's why I was so blessed by your heart when I read your question. Um, um, your kids need to learn to stand for Jesus Christ. Let me finally say this, and we're just about out, out of time at the end of the program. Uh, it's also really important that your children um, know that your walk and, and, and uh, mom and dad's both, their walk with Jesus is consistent, it's genuine, it's not hypocritical, uh, that you're committed to the Lord. They need to see joy, not so much fear. They need to see joy in your heart. Uh, if they see the real, then they won't be seduced by the counterfeit. But please remember, this is a war, and our children are the targets. If you read the Old Testament, whenever children, women and children were taken in the spoils of battle, God got really serious about protecting them. He's really serious about protecting our kids now. So God bless you for being worried. Uh, now it's time to be moved to action. Hey, thanks for a great week. You've been listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. Quick reminder, I will not be live on Monday because it's a holiday, Martin Luther King Day. Have a wonderful, wonderful weekend and holiday. May the Lord bless you and keep you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. And I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.